The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we open God's Word to study it this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared for study of God's Word. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9, the privacy of the priesthood of the believer. If necessary, we have a few moments of silent prayer to exercise that option to make sure that we are in fellowship. Confession is simply admission or acknowledgement of our sins to God the Father. In privacy, it's no one else's business. So we just take a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to gather together as a body of believers this morning to worship you through the study of your word. There is no other, no higher form of worship than to devote ourselves to understanding what you have revealed to us, that by it we may learn how to think and what to think, that through our thoughts we might apply your word in our lives, that you might be glorified to the maximum in history and for all eternity. So now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, of course, in the middle of a war. We are in the middle of not only the angelic conflict, but we are in the middle of an internal war, and that's the subject of Galatians 5 and following. So open your Bibles to Galatians 5.16. And contrary to the way spiritual warfare is taught by so many people today, the real battle... No matter who the enemy is, whether the enemy is outside of you in terms of, the, of, of Satan or his henchmen, the demons, or whether the, the enemy outside of you is the cosmic system, or whether the enemy is the internal enemy of our own sin nature, the way to respond to that enemy and defeat that enemy is always the same. It never involves going out and taking Satan captive or rebuking the devil or any of that sort of nonsense. But it is always related to thinking. The real battle takes place between your ears. It doesn't take place somewhere else. So the issue is ultimately and always volition. And that is the point of this passage that we are examining this morning. Now, in Galatians 5.16 we read, But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, we have spent almost a month analyzing what is meant by the concept, by the mandate, walking by means of the Spirit. This emphasizes a, it's a present active indicative, which indicates it is a, a standard operating procedure for living the spiritual life. We have to walk. It's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day conscious dependence upon God the Holy Spirit moving forward. Walk by means of the Spirit, and what this tells us then is that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So having taken a lot of time to understand how walking by the Spirit works, that it works because we have made a decision, first and foremost, to to depend upon God the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't something mystical. It is done primarily through learning and applying the Word of God. But we have seen that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit and we quench the Holy Spirit. We are then out of fellowship And the Bible says that this is walking in darkness. And as long as we walk in darkness, we do not have fellowship with God. So the only way to recover is through 1 John 1.9, confession of sin. And then we begin to walk 
in the light, or that simply puts us experientially back into the bottom circle where we can walk in the light. But here the issue, once again, is volition and obedience and application to divine mandates. Now, these are mutually exclusive categories. We've seen this in our well-known and memorized diagram of the top and bottom circle, that either you're out here in carnality, walking in darkness, or you're in here walking in the light. There's no middle ground. And you can see that in the way that this verse is constructed. I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and then we have an interesting phrase, and, which is just the connective chi, and you will not literally fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the verb there, and the way it's constructed, is very interesting and very strong. It is the uh, aorist active subjunctive of the Greek verb teleao, which means to uh, bring to completion. Often this is uh, translated perfect, but not in the sense of uh, uh, sinlessness. And perfect has wrong implications, so I don't like that. The main idea is to bring something to completion. Now, when you take a subjunctive, a little point of grammar here, you have an aorist, active, subjunctive. Now, on something like this, it's not so important what the tense and the, and the voice are. What's important is the, the combination. And in Greek, what you would do is if you wanted to say something and you wanted to negate it in the strongest possible terms, what you would do is you would put it in the subjunctive mood because that is the mood of potentiality. And what you are going to do in your negation is show that there is absolutely no potential here. And so you would take two negatives. In the Greek language, you have two negatives, OU and ME. Me. Now, in English, it's bad form to use a double negative. It's poor grammar and is meaningless. However, in Greek, if you want to say no and you mean it, then what you do is you double your negatives. In English, double negative equals a positive. But in Greek, a double negative is a most emphatic way of saying no. So if you take both your negatives, ou and me, plus an aorist subjunctive verb, what you are saying is there is no possibility whatsoever that this can occur. It is the most emphatic, absolute form of negation possible. So that indicates that these are mutually exclusive concepts, either walking by the Spirit or carrying out the desire of the flesh. One or the other, you can't do both at the same time. You can't be a little spiritual and a little carnal, in other words, as some people today want to say. Uh, you often hear people say, well, even at our very best, there's a certain level of, sinful, of selfishness, there's a certain level of sin there, and so even at our best, we're never really doing God's will exclusively. Well, if that's true, then we're never a carnal, we're never in fellowship, because how much unrighteousness does it take to violate the righteousness of God? Just a little bit. So there pious reasoning may sound like it has some validity, but when you start taking it apart, what you usually find, like you do with most pious reasoning, is it doesn't really hold water. So what Paul is saying is, you've got two options. You're either going to be walking by means of the Spirit, or you are going to be fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Now, the word here for flesh is the Greek word sarkos. S-A-R-K-O-S which can refer to the literal uh, musc muscles and, and meat that wraps around the bones in a body. But it has a metaphorical meaning that relates to the sin nature. And it's used this way many, many times in the Scripture. It has about five or six different meanings, but this is the concept here. So now we have to switch gears. Instead of talking about the positive, walking by means of the Spirit, we have to talk about the negative now and understand the doctrine of the sin nature. So I have about 
13 or 14 points to cover on the doctrine of the sin nature. So we're going to start taking this apart to make sure we do understand how sinful we are. Now, you might not think that's so important. But I think that the more we realize how sinful we are, the more we realize what grace is all about. A person who thinks that somehow they're nice enough, they're sweet enough, they have an attractive enough personality to think that God somehow loves them because there's something in them that God finds lovable, can never understand grace. Because the point of the Scripture is that there's nothing in any of us that God finds the least bit attractive. Not one thing. You're not nice enough. You're not sweet enough. You're not good enough. You've never done one single thing in your life that would gain the approval of God. Now that shocks most people. Because most people want to think there's just something about themselves that God ought to find attractive. And the Bible says, not at all. And the reason we think that is we don't really understand the sinfulness of sin. So let's start off by looking at point number one, the terminology. Terminology here is sarks. And this is used, as I've said, figuratively, for that which inhabits or has as its source the genetic structure of the human being and produces the inclination and propensity to sin. It refers to something that inhabits or has as its source the genetic structure of the human being and produces the inclination and propensity to sin. Now, we want to have a little caveat here, a little word of warning. Back in the early church and even before that, there's always a human viewpoint philosophy that comes along and says, that which is material is evil and that which is immaterial is good. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, and what we will see, is that the Bible says that sin invaded the entire makeup of the human being and resides not immaterially, like the, it's not an immaterial thing like the soul, but it resides in the very flesh, in the very body of sin. Paul uses these very strong terms to show where sin resides, where the sin nature resides, and where it is transmitted, how it is transmitted. So it inhabits the very genetic structure. That's why today, when you will hear, and I predict that in the coming years you will hear this more and more. In fact, at any day I expect them to discover a certain gene that means that you will be an alcoholic. Or a certain gene that means that you will be a murderer. Or a certain gene that means that you will be a homosexual. The Bible does not negate that. Where they will go with that is saying that this necessarily determines what you will be. That is wrong. See, the Bible says that the sin nature has its source genetically and is transmitted genetically through procreation. But that this genetic material is merely a predisposition in certain directions. Ultimately, it is your volition that determines whether or not that is brought to fruition. So every single person here has certain proclivities of their sin nature. Some of you want to are dominated by approbation lust, and you're motivated by approbation lust. Some are motivated by power lust. Some of you struggle with materialism lust or sex lust. Those are the basic core motivators of the sin nature. Some of you have trends towards self-righteousness. Others of you have trends towards lasciviousness and antinomianism. It all depends on your, your makeup. Everybody's different. Sometimes in life you may be one way, and another time in life you may be another way. But you were born with those, those predispositions. That's part of your sin nature. But whether or not you activate those things depends totally upon your volition. Environment may give you certain options or may not give you those options. And you may think that you don't have a problem whatsoever in a certain arena. And then all of a sudden when you're 30 or 40 years old, somebody introduces you to something that 
that you never had before. Maybe you grew up in a home where where alcohol was never served, and so it was never an issue, and you never took a drink. And then when you're 40 years old, you're at a party, and somebody pours out a good single malt scotch, and you think you ought to try it, and you do, and you just think it's mother's milk. And all of a sudden, that alcohol hits your system, and it never has before, and it interacts chemically with your body, and now you've got a problem that you never thought you would have. So it, environment plays a role. But the ultimate issue is not your genetic predisposition. It's not the genetic predisposition of your sin nature. It's up to your volition. Now, as an unbeliever, you are a slave to your sin nature, and you can't do anything other than obey your sin nature, either the area of weakness, or the area of strength, or whatever. But as a believer, you are freed from the power of sin nature. This is what the Scripture clearly teaches in relation to the plan of salvation. That at phase one, faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved from the eternal penalty of sin, but we still have a sin nature. And phase two salvation is the process of learning the assets that God has given us spiritually in terms of doctrine and the Holy Spirit so that we can utilize those assets correctly and not yield to the power of the, whole, of, of the sin nature, not yield to the temptation of the sin nature. So when we start off with our definition, we are clearly recognizing that there is a uh, genetic aspect to the sin nature, that it is transmitted genetically, passed on physically, resides in the cell structure of the human body, and has certain carries with it certain inclinations and propensities to sin. That's the definition. Now some verses to substantiate that. Romans 7.5 says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body. Notice these physical terms that are used there. They were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Then Romans 8, 4 and following, which we'll look at eventually, is one of the greatest discourses on the battle between the, the sin nature and the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 4 says, In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So these are some of the key verses to look at, which demonstrate that the term flesh is used in reference to the sin nature that every human being possesses, which is our inclination and our propensity and our orientation to sin. Now that we have said that, let's move to some definitions. Point two, definitions. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Now, if you were raised Presbyterian, you probably memorized either the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism. These were put together by uh, English Calvinists in the 16th century in order to inculcate doctrine into children. Very important. It's an excellent tool and they had to memorize a variety of questions and their answers, and for the most part, it reflects excellent theology. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, it defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Now, that is a pretty standard and often quoted definition. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, uh, modified that a little bit. He said, instead of saying that it is a want of conformity unto the law of God, it's better to put the absolute standard as the character of God because the law of God is simply the verbal expression of the character of God. So he changed the definition to sin as any want of conformity to the character of God. Further, he said, the general term for sin is the Greek word homertia, meaning that a prescribed mark or ideal has been missed. This marker ideal is the essential character of God, which is made known to man by God's revealed will or law. And then John Calvin 
had a very extended uh, comment on sin, which I thought was, was just excellent. And I thought I would just read a couple of extracts from this. It's a rather long paragraph. But he says some pr- fairly profound and important things. He says, Original sin, then, may be defined as a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature. I want you to pay attention to these words because they're not words that people like to hear about themselves. But it is essential to understand who we are as God defines us if we're ever going to understand what the real problems are and really appreciate the great solution that God has given to us. Notice these words. These are not words that psychologists would say engender a positive self-image. Original sin, then, may be defined as a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature, extending to all the parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God, and then produces in us works which in Scripture are termed works of the flesh. So he clearly talks about the fact that sin is not some illness. Some people want to uh, handle sin as if it's some illness or some uh, simply a lack uh, in man, something missing. And we'll come along later on and talk about some of the false views of sin to understand that. But he clearly makes it, he clearly states it's a corruption and depravity. Now, he goes on to say a number of other things, and then towards the end, he concludes by saying, Nay, Their whole nature, as it were, is a seedbed of sin. And therefore, have you thought about yourself that way lately? When you look in the mirror, do you say, look, there is a person who is a seedbed of sin. Have you looked at that sweet little baby that you have and thought about that child as a seedbed of sin? Well, that's what the Scripture says, so we have to start with reality here. Their whole matter, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Hence it follows that it is properly deemed sinful in the sight of God, for there could be no condemnation without guilt. Next comes the other point, that this perversity in us never ceases, but constantly produces new fruits, in other words, these works of the flesh which we formerly described, Just as a lighted furnace sends forth sparks and flames, or a fountain without ceasing pours out water. Hence, those who have defined original sin as the lack of original righteousness, see, that's a, uh, that's standard, you go back to uh, Aquinas and others, and that's how they want to define sin, is what they call privation, it's a lack of righteousness. But you see, what the Bible says is that it's not simply that you lack righteousness, It's that you also have something more added to it. It's not simply an absence of righteousness. It is the uh, addition of something evil and obnoxious to God. That's the problem with the Roman Catholic definition of sin, is it isn't sinful enough. It's simply that man lacks something. But God says he not only lacks something, he has something added that is evil and obnoxious. So Calvin says, Hence those who have defined original sin as the lack of the original righteousness which we ought to have had, though they substantially comprehend the whole case, do not significantly enough express its power and energy. For our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. Those who term it concupiscence, which I looked that up, That's an old word. I don't know what it meant when this was translated, but in current dictionaries it just refers to sexual lust, so it's not a good word at all to define the sin nature, at least not anymore. Those who term it concupiscence use a word not very inappropriate, provided it were added uh, that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with this concupiscence, or to express it more briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing else than concupiscence. In other words, we are totally depraved. So when we talk about sin, we'll define it this way. Sin is any mental, verbal, or overt act which violates the character, standards, and will of God, 
which are revealed in the Word of God. Any mental, verbal, or overt act which violates the character, standards, and will of God which are revealed in the Word of God. Now, what that tells us right away is there is an absolute standard. There is an absolute standard, and that is in the person and character of God. Now, we live in an era today which rejects the notion that there are absolute standards. The technical term for the ideology dominating our current culture is postmodernism. Postmodernism walks hand in hand with something called multiculturalism. And at some point, we'll probably take some time to do a detailed study of these things. But multiculturalism says every culture is equal and has equal value. And all parts of each culture are equal and have equal value. So if you're a Satanist, or if you're an animist or in the darkest of Africa, or if you're an intellectual at Harvard University, or if you're a white uh, male European, or a female Asian, whatever your culture is, you can never say the greatest sin you can commit is to say that one is better than the other. Now, what lies behind that is a system of values, which says you cannot say something is right or something is wrong anymore, because that simply reflects your own cultural bias. And if you're the worst of all sinners, which is a white male, then you can never use terms like right and wrong, because that simply reflects your chauvinistic bias. So you have to use other terminology, and I'm going to probably mention this again next hour, but what you hear today, notice, what you hear today is you never hear anybody talk about behavior as right or wrong anymore, especially in the schools. What you hear over and over again is something is appropriate or it's inappropriate. And we've all fallen into that trap. We hear it all the time now, and I think that we ought to completely slash those terms from our vocabulary. Because the root of that terminology is postmodernism. There is nothing right or wrong anymore. It's either appropriate or inappropriate. So there's a good point of application this morning in relation to your own vocabulary. So sin comes from an absolute. It's the violation of that absolute which resides in the character and standards of God. The second definition we need to address is the sin nature. Now, the sin nature is the capacity, the propensity, and the inclination in every human being to make life work independently of God. Now, pay attention to that. It is the capacity, the propensity, and the inclination in every human being to make life work independently of God. Now, notice that doesn't focus on horrible, evil acts that we usually think of when we think of sin. Because what sin is in its essence is saying, I can make the decision and I'm the authority, not God. I will determine what right and wrong is and not God. It's an assertion of independence. And that's exactly what took place in the original angelic fall and also in the Garden of Eden which we will look at under point number three, which is the origination of sin in the universe. Sin originated in the universe when Lucifer first sinned. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Let's turn first of all to the Ezekiel 28 passage. Ezekiel 28. Latter part of the New Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Now, if we look at the beginning of Isaiah 28, we'll see that God, the Word of the Lord, comes to Ezekiel to address an oracle of condemnation against the the New American Standard translates it the leader of Tyre, but it is really the prince of Tyre. It should be translated the prince of Tyre as the King James Version did. Now, There's a lot of discussion, and this is going to really amaze you. Today, most Old Testament scholars don't think either of these two passages have anything to do with Satan or Lucifer. That's what's being taught 
at even places like Dallas Seminary. I think that's absolutely absurd. If you look at what is said here in relationship to the Prince of Tyre, starting in verse 2 down to 10, that obviously will apply to a human ruler. But what is said, starting in verse 11, and what is addressed to the king of Tyre is something else again. The king of Tyre cannot be a human being. In fact, I think an excellent term that's used here is a French term, ominance grise. And this always refers to the power behind the throne. And the way that that developed was back during the 1600s when uh, the major power in France was Cardinal Richelieu. You know of him if you've seen the Three Musketeers. He always wore his red cardinal robe, and he was called Aminance Rouge. Well, he was the, the power, the, his second in command, who really carried out a lot of his uh, uh, a lot of his dictates. Who succeeded him as cardinal did not wear red robes, but wore gray robes, and he was really the power behind the throne of the King of France. And so he, he was called the Aminance Gris. So that's where this term comes from, and it's a little addition to your vocabulary today, and it refers to the power behind the throne. So whenever you see that term, it refers to someone who is not up front, but who is manipulating things behind the scenes. And that's the scenario we have starting in verse 12, is that the human king of Tyre, the human leader of Tyre, is really a puppet, and he is being manipulated by someone else. And this someone else is identified as the true ruler of Tyre, the king of Tyre. And this, this personage cannot be a human being because of what is said about him. So it must refer to an angelic personage. Begins in verse 12. You had the seal of perfection, past tense, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And this terminology in, in Hebrew indicates that this creature was at one time the most perfect creature ever to come from the hand of God, the most brilliant, the most beautiful, the most intelligent uh, creature to ever come from the hand of God. And that describes Lucifer, the highest of all of the angels. Then we have in verse 13, it begins, In Eden you were, that's how it's written in the Hebrew for emphasis, Eden being the a term describing the throne room of God. You were in Eden, the garden of God, not to be confused with the garden of Eden where man was placed. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, uh, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created they were prepared. Now, the interesting thing here is we don't have time to do this, is if you look at all of these jewels and you look at the, the concept here, these jewels remind us of the jewels that the high priest of Israel was to wear in his breastplate. So there is a, if you were Jewish and you read this, what would come to your mind is the, the dress of the high priest of Israel. So from this we get the, the hint that in his original function, before he fell, Lucifer had something of a priestly function in relationship to all of the angels. This is our first hint of that. He was absolutely perfect. Then in verse 14 we read, You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, this is a pregnant verse in terms of the, the implications here. First of all, he's called the anointed cherub. And the word that we have here for anointed is this word in the Hebrew. Mashiach. Now, what is our English transliteration of that? It's Messiah. Now, Messiah relates to whom? Jesus Christ. It simply means the anointed one. But it shows that this role that Lucifer held prior to the fall was a special role. He had a unique role. He was a cherub. This is a class of, of angels that is very powerful. Probably the highest of all of the angels were the cherubs. The uh, plural puts in, in, in Hebrew, 
they, they make a word plural by adding I-M. In English, we make it plural by adding S. So when you read cherubim, that means cherubs. I think the New American Standard translates it correctly. At one point, I know in the King James Version, they got carried away and they said cherubims. They wanted to make sure you really understood that there was more than one. So here you have, he was the anointed cherub. The cherubs are almost always associated, they are intimately located in the throne of God, and they're almost always associated with His righteousness and justice. So here is this angelic creature, the most beautiful, intelligent of all creatures, who has terminology used about Him that is related to priestly function. He is the anointed cherub who covers, and that term covering again. Remember, there is the covering of sin on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a term that carries with it the sense of atonement. So there's all kinds of of nuances to these words that are used here to describe Lucifer's function prior to the fall that speak of a priest, some kind of a priestly role. The verse goes on to say, You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So God created Lucifer perfect. But like all rational creatures that God creates, He had volition. And He exercised His volition against God one day. And unrighteousness, that means He violated the perfect righteousness of God. Unrighteousness was discovered in you. And then verse 16 is interesting. It says, by the abundance of your trade. Now, we're talking about Tyre. Tyre was a major commercial center in the ancient world. That's where it was on the coast, sea coast, on the Mediterranean Sea. And so ships from Egypt, from all around the Mediterranean, from Greece, from Rome, from as far away as Spain, all brought their goods to Tyre. And so it was a commercial center, a lot of trade going on. So Ezekiel uses this, this imagery of trade and says, By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. What was... Lucifer trading. What was his commerce? Well, we can't say for sure, but I would suggest that because of the priestly terminology used to describe him, that his role, what he's trading, what he's trafficking in, is that he is carrying the praise and worship of the angelic host to God, just as the high priest of Israel would be carrying the praise and worship of the people of Israel to God. He is the representative, the high priest is a representative of all the people, and they approach God through him. So all the angels would approach God through Lucifer as their high priest. And as he trafficked in that trade, what happened was he decided he wanted all of that praise and worship for himself instead of giving it to God. That's the image that we have here. And so he begins to want to be like God. Now the result is given halfway through verse 16. You sinned, therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. There that same terminology is used again. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your reason, your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. There brought, you, brought fire from the midst of you as consumed you. And then it goes on to describe the rest of the judgment. Now let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 14 to see a little more detail in the origination of sin among the angels. This is the initial introduction of sin into creation. Prior to this, there was no sin. Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Isaiah says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Now, the New American Standard has chosen to translate the Hebrew. The original, I think it's better in the King James, where they just give him the name Lucifer, which means Star of the morning, O Lucifer, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. So this starts off where Ezekiel 28 stopped. But you said in your heart, and here we have the sin of Lucifer. 
I will ascend to heaven, the five I wills. So he is asserting his will over against God's will. That's why I define the sin nature as essentially that inclination towards asserting independence from God. That is saying, I will rather than thou will. That is the essence of sin. I am the final authority, not God. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is a term in the Old Testament for the angels. He wanted to rule the angels. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So this is Lucifer's sin. It is characterized by uh, the uh, assertion of independence or autonomy. He wants to be completely independent of God, and his claim is that he can rule the creation, he can rule the angels, he just wants to go off on his own, and his claim is that he has enough intelligence and enough power to be able to rule the creation on his own without any interference from God, And God is going to show in the course of the angelic conflict that this is a completely fraudulent claim, that nothing can be done on the basis of arrogance. The only thing that can be accomplished is on the basis of humility, which is understanding our right relationship to God and being dependent upon Him. So sin originated in the universe when Lucifer first sinned. That's point three in the doctrine of the sin nature. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Now, we do not know exactly when this took place. It was sometime before Genesis 1-2, in that interlude between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that Lucifer fell and took one-third of the angels with him. Now, we don't know how long a period that took place. My inclination is to shorten these things. Some people want to put a lot of time there. I don't think it took a lot of time. It didn't take a lot of time for man once he sin for everything to fall apart, so I don't think it took a lot of time, and I think it, it just, uh, hap- everything happened very rapidly, and then as a result of that, God had to judge the universe, and that's where Genesis 1-2 picks up, and the terminology there, that, uh, that if we'll turn back to Genesis 1, because we're going to get into Genesis 3 in a minute. The earth was formless and void. Tohu vabohu is a phrase that is typically used in the Scriptures to describe a state of judgment. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness is also used in Scripture as antithesis to God and to perfection and to indicate sinfulness. The surface of the deep, the deep is also used symbolically in, in Scripture as a representation of chaos and anarchy and sin. And the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. And this indicates an absolute regeneration of planet Earth after the judgment on Satan. So that what comes up afterwards has nothing to do with what took place before. It is a complete, total renovation of the planet in preparation for the creation of man. So sin originated in the universe when Lucifer's first sin. There was a judgment. And then Lucifer made his claim that God, how can a just and loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire without giving them an opportunity to to prove what they can do. And so God is going to give Lucifer an extended opportunity, and that is human history. Point number four, sin is an act of volition against God. By moving on here, sin is an act of volition against God, producing sins in four categories. There are four categories of sin. Sins of, first of all, they are, I'll list them for you, commission, omission, ignorance, and cognizance. The first is commission. Sins of commission are when you actively perform or engage in overt, mental, or verbal acts which violate the character of God. A sin of commission is to actively perform or engage in overt mental, overt mental or verbal acts which violate the character of God. That's a sin of commission. A sin of omission is a sin because you fail to attain the highest standards revealed by God. For example, you have the opportunity to 
demonstrate impersonal love to someone, love your neighbor as yourself, and you don't hate them, you don't hurt them, you just don't do anything, you just ignore the situation. That is a sin of omission. By failing to do what you should have done, you are sinning. Then there are sins of ignorance. By doing something that you did not know was a sin. That's a sin of ignorance. You don't know it's a sin, but you do it anyway. Nevertheless, you wanted to do it, and you did it. Because you wanted to do it, you are culpable. Ignorance of the... ...for an excuse. Just because you don't know that there is a shell in the chamber of the 45 when you point it at somebody and pull the trigger doesn't bring them back to life. Ignorance is never an excuse. Okay? So, whether you know it's a sin or even if you don't know it's a sin does not change the fact that you violate the absolute standard of God. You want to do it and you do it so you're held accountable. And then the fourth category is a sin of cognizance. A sin of cognizance. You know it's a sin, you want to do it, and you do it. Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross for every single sin in every single category. He paid the price for sins of omission. He paid the price for sins of commission. He paid the price for sins of ignorance. And He paid the price for sins of cognizance. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. Point number five. As we have seen from all of this, sin is ultimately an act of independence against God. So all sins are first and foremost sins against God, no matter who else they might affect. You might murder somebody, and that's obviously a sin against them, but it's first and foremost a sin against God. When David confessed his sins of adultery with Bathsheba, the cover-up, the uh, conspiratorial murder of her husband Uriah, when it was all said and done and hundreds of people were affected by his sin, he said, Lord, against Thee and Thee only have I sinned. See, sin doesn't have to do with sinning against somebody else's standards. You don't sin against your husband's standards. You don't sin against your wife's standards. Sin is a theological term and relates to the violation of God's standards. Now, we've already talked about the sin, how sin originated in the, in the angelic realm, in the universe. And now under point six, we're going to look at how sin originated in the human race in relation to Adam's original sin in the garden. When God created Adam and Eve, or Adam and Isha, that was their original names, the man was called Adam, and the woman was called Isha. She did not get the name Eve until after the fall when she began to have children. Before that, she was known as Isha. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Male and female, both are equally in the image of God. They were given a test. They were created, as, as being created in the image of God, they were created perfect, had absolute righteousness, even though this was an untested or unconfirmed righteousness. It was still, they were created perfect and they were placed in perfect environment and God provided everything that they would need to supply every single necessity that could be imagined. And God placed them in the garden and He said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, Yahweh Elohim commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, a couple of things we have to to note here as we look at this prohibition. First of all, God supplied all kinds of food for Adam and Isha. There was nothing inherent in the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that made it wrong. It was not poisonous. 
There was not something in it that, that changed them. It was not physically wrong. It was wrong because God said it was wrong. Second, it is not some sort of, of uh, allegory for sex. Now, somebody will probably try to tell you that at some point, so I have to always add that. I remember an argument I got in with somebody years ago, and they tried to tell me that I didn't know what I was talking about because obviously none of this could be taken literally, and so what God was saying here was that sex was, they couldn't have sex. I said, well, if God said they couldn't have sex, why did He tell them to multiply and fill the earth? So you're saying God doesn't know what He's talking about, and He's inconsistent. You always find some, some loose nut in every group. This is taken literally. There was a literal tree and a literal fruit, but it was not poisonous. It wasn't necessarily an apple. It was probably a pomegranate or fig or date or who knows what it was. could have even been a peach. But what it was is not the issue. What it represented was the issue. The issue was obedience or disobedience to God. That's what made it sinful. Not that there was something inherently wrong with the fruit. Now, that's an important thing to think about because most of us want to think of sin in terms of something that is inherently wrong. See, there are a lot of good things we do that are wrong because they are done in the assertion of our independence from God. That's what makes it sinful. What made it sinful was not that it was inherently wrong, but that God said it was wrong and to eat that fruit was for man to say, I know more than God knows, and I will make the determination of my own, for my life uh, in opposition to God. So there was a test, the test of the tree. And there is a penalty. And that penalty is stated here in a very strong Hebrew phrase. It's the use of the cow perfect, I mean the cow imperative, plus a cal infinitive absolute. Now, if when you take this in the Hebrew, you take the cal stem, you take a cal imperative of prohibition plus a cal infinitive absolute, that emphasizes the certainty of the prohibition. Now, I've taken time in the past, and I'm not going to do it now, to go through a number of passages in Genesis where you have this identical grammatical construction. It has been said that that this should be translated because of the double verb here, dying you will die. But I've demonstrated that if you translate this kind of semantic construction like that anywhere else in the Scriptures, it's nonsense. What this means is that at the moment of eating the fruit, death would occur. Now, the death that occurred was spiritual death, which is defined as separation from God. That's the essential meaning of death. It's not cessation of existence, but separation. Now, spiritual death is the cause of all other kinds of death. Now, the Bible speaks of six other kinds of death. These are physical death, which is the separation of soul from the body, sexual death, which is the... Uh, the loss of the function of the reproduction abil- reproductive ability. There is positional death for the believer where the believer is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. Then there is uh, what is called operational death which is the dead faith in James 2:14 through 26 then there is carnal or temporal death when the believer is out of fellowship and operating on the sin nature as opposed to the filling of the holy spirit and finally there is the culmination for the unbeliever in eternal condemnation which is called the second death Now, you wouldn't have any of those in creation if you didn't have spiritual death. So, all other categories of death are the result of spiritual death. Spiritual death is the penalty for sin. 
And spiritual death affects the entire dimension of creation. We see that in the consequences that are spelled out in the curse starting in Genesis 3.14. Genesis 3.14 deals with the consequences in time. Now, as I've said in the past, spiritual death is P1, penalty 1. All other forms of death, except for second death, which affects eternity, are I call P2. These are the penalty for sin penalties in space-time history. In, in, the, in our day-to-day experience, when we disobey God, these are consequences that we go through. Jesus Christ paid for this penalty on the cross. He died spiritually. It was a spiritual, spiritual substitutionary atonement. Physical death is not the penalty for sin. Spiritual death is. So it wasn't Christ's physical death on the cross that paid our penalty. It was His spiritual death on the cross when He was separated from God the Father between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when God the Father covered the earth in darkness and all the sins of mankind were poured out on Jesus Christ and He was separated from the Father and He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? That is when the sin penalty was paid. It was not paid when He died physically. It was paid during those three hours on the cross when there was darkness on the earth and all other sin penalties, P2, are dealt with as a result of that. That's why we have to confess our sins. We still have temporal consequences that were not paid for on the cross. Now, there are certain consequences spelled out by God in Genesis 3:14 through 19. This is called a curse. These are not simply consequences. These are, this is a negative curse that God places on the planet and on creation and on man because of sin. First of all, to the serpent in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now, if you have a New American Standard Version, you'll notice that this, these verses are indented. It's indented because it is stated in Hebrew in poetry. So that the poetry is going to, Moses wrote it that way in order to give it a little more emphasis. And what this is saying is that there is going to be, there was at the time of the curse, at this moment, a major physiological transformation in the serpent. After this point, he no longer would move about the way he did before. He got a new system of locomotion, and from this point on, Serpents would travel on their scuts as opposed to legs or whatever form of locomotion they had prior to the fall. So God changed their physiological structure at this point in order to reflect this change. So one consequence of sin in time is that the very physiology of serpents was changed. Then to the woman in verse 15, I will put enmity between you that is, he's talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, your seed, Satan, is all that would follow Lucifer. Lucifer was the serpent. We know that from various passages of Scripture. His seed is all that would follow him, all that would be involved in the cosmic system. And her seed refers to the coming Messiah. This is the first promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of the Gospel. That and And then... God said, He shall bruise you on the head. That's a fatal wound. This occurred when Jesus Christ bruised Satan on the, on the head at the cross. And you, meaning the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. It would just be a temporary, but not a permanent wounding. And that's what took place uh, at the cross. Satan did have a temporary victory, but it was not a conclusive victory. You shall bruise him... On the heel. To the woman, he said. Now we're going to spell out the consequence to the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, this doesn't say, ladies, that childbirth is part of the curse. Now, you might have thought so at some point, but God intended for the woman to bear children from her, in, from her inception. That's why God told Adam and the woman in the garden be fruitful and multiply. And that was intended from day one. 
Now, the fact that they did not have children in the garden could be for any number of reasons. could be that they weren't there long enough. And it could be that God in His sovereignty just prevented pregnancy from occurring until they had the opportunity to have go through the test. But for whatever reason, pregnancy was postponed. Now there is going to be a penalty. Remember, let's go back a little bit. We have to do some very good understanding of the Old Testament here. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, He gave them what some people call the dominion mandate. He said, you are to go forth, you are to be fruitful and multiply and what? Subdue the earth. So this is part of the original creation mandate given by God to the human race. So in turn, the curse is related to the, the fact that from this point on, because of sin, it would be virtually impossible for man to fulfill that mandate. Before the fall, the fulfillment of that mandate would be easy. After the fall, it would be an obstacle. So in terms of the first part, being fruitful and multiply, the woman is now going to have pain in childbirth, suffering, misery, going through all the labor pains in the process of giving birth to a child. The man, in terms of fulfilling the dominion mandate, is going to have his own arena of difficulty. Remember, you are to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Well, man, before the garden, he guarded the garden and he cultivated it. He didn't have any problem. He wasn't in conflict with creation. After the fall, he's in conflict with creation. He is not able to subdue the earth fully because he's got to fight thorns and thistles and weeds. And now he is in a battle with creation. So, the curse relates back to the original purpose for man and you see the organization. It affects the woman. She's not going to be able. She's going to have pain and difficulty in fulfilling her part, and the man in fulfilling her his part. And then further for the woman, it says, "Your desire shall be for your husband." Now that is not sexual desire. Some people take it that way, but that's not what that word means in the Hebrew. It's teshuka, and it means a desire for control. It's the same word God used when he was speaking to Cain in the next chapter in Genesis 4-7, when God told him about the temptation he was going through. And he told Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. That's the same word for desire. It's a desire to control, a desire to master, a desire to manipulate. And so what we see here is that sin is going to impact human relationships so that rather than peace and harmony, they will be characterized by continuous struggle for dominion, authority, and leadership. Your desire shall be for your husband. You're going to want to rule the house, and he shall rule over you. And the word there for rule is a word that implies tyrannical control. So what we see here is that generally speaking in history, this doesn't mean, ladies, that every one of you is a contentious woman who just wants to go out and dominate your husband. But that's the general tendency among the female species throughout human history, to one degree lesser or greater. And, of course, to whatever degree you've been taught biblical principles, you can overcome that. That's the whole purpose of sanctification is rolling back various aspects of the curse. The same thing is true for the husband. The indication here is that men, and you can see this in history, that men will want to gain a tyrannical position over women. And that also is played out in history. And that, of course, is going to be radically transformed as a result of the application of doctrine. And then the man has to deal with the fact that nature is being transformed. So there is an aspect of sin that impacts creation. Thorns, thistles, rise up. In fact, every category of botany, zoology, and anthropology are affected and impacted by the curse. All the animals were originally created gramnivorous or as herbivores. And yet, after the fall, they become carnivores. That changes their dental structure. That changes their digestive system. 
That has a radical impact. What I want you to understand from this is the exceeding sinfulness of sin and that when Adam disobeyed God, it radically transformed creation from A to Z. Every aspect of creation was affected. Every aspect of life, plant life, animal life, human life, relationships, everything is radically transformed even to the extent of changing physiological structures so that what happened or what it was the earth was like after the fall bore little resemblance to what it was like before the fall and of course God provides the perfect solution in Jesus Christ who begins the process of rolling back the curse because he's the one who dies and pays the penalty and this is rolled back sequentially it starts with the redemption of mankind. Then you see historically it take place at a second stage at the millennial kingdom where part of the curse is rolled back so that the lion lies down with the lamb. A child can put his hand in a cobra's den. And then it rolls back even further after the great white throne judgment when all sin is purged from the heavens and the earth and God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And that's how all this fits in. Well, we got down through point six. We've got about eight more points to go in the doctrine of sin and the sin nature. And we'll continue with that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word today, to study these things, to see how exceedingly sinful we are because that demonstrates to us how great and magnificent Your grace is. That You provided everything for us and You sent Your Son to die on the cross for us that in and of ourselves we are nothing, but You are everything, and You have provided everything, and we could do nothing. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope, without eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that right now they would take the opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. He alone is the only solution to our problems. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, store them in our souls, that we might utilize them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.